Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Refuge Radio. I am your host, Brendan. I use he, him pronouns. And I am your co-host, uh, Piper Jones. I use they, them pronouns. Uh, and this week, we are missing our beloved friend, Gaines. Uh, he is out, and it's unfortunate because he would have absolutely loved this conversation that we had with uh, Father Shannon T.L. Kearns about his new book, In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. Yeah, not only is there just, um, does he have such a powerful story to tell about his own life, he has such a rich knowledge and understanding of God, the divine scripture, what that means for us, what that those impacts are on our lives and what theology's impacts are on our lives and on culture. And I absolutely tore through this book over the past couple of days, and I am so excited to get into this conversation. So without further ado. Shannon, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, like you said, my name is Shannon T.L. Kearns. I use he, him, his pronouns. Uh, when I when I give people the pithy introduction, I tell folks that I was raised a fundamentalist evangelical who grew up to become the first openly transgender man ordained to the old Catholic priesthood. Um, and obviously, there's a lot to un- unpack in there. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm a playwright and a writer and I, one of the co-founders of QueerTheology.com. And uh, really, all of my work revolves around making meaning through stories. I love that. I also love that. Thank you so much for joining us, Shannon. Um, for those of you that aren't aware, Shannon has written a book called In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. It is an excellent book, and we're going to talk through uh, many of the things that you kind of touch on in it, because really, it takes us on a journey through a lot of different biblical stories, but ultimately, it's the story of you. Mm-hmm. and what your experiences have been in some of these Christian spaces. And so, Shannon, if you could just like set the scene for us, tell us a little bit about what what was your family like growing up? What was the dynamic there? Where did you grow up? What did you grow up? What, what was that culture that you grew up in? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in you know, the 80s and up to late 90s um, in a Grace Brethren church. And the the Grace Brethren church started in the 1930s because they wanted to be more fundamentalist. So that gives you an idea of, of who they are. They broke off from the Brethren church. Uh, so the Brethren church eventually like ordained women and protested against war and the Grace Brethren church did not. Um, and so that was the context <laughs> gotcha. that I grew up in. And starting in seventh grade, I was homeschooled. And so the church really became my entire social existence, right? I, I played some community sports, but the the real bulk of where I spent most of my time was in the church. Uh, and so from the from my youngest age, I was attending this church, and then it just became more and more important uh, as time went on. My family was very dedicated to this church. They were junior high youth group leaders that volunteered. Um, so we were just there all the time. And so that that setting of being in a rural community, it didn't have any access to the outside world. We didn't have the internet. Google didn't exist. We had three TV channels, like on a good day. Uh, we didn't have cable, right? So there was really, my world was really small growing up. Uh, and And really until, you know, probably college stayed that kind of small with where everything was focused on this church, the denomination that I grew up in. Um, and, and that was pretty much it. You write in uh, your book quite a lot about, I guess, in the trans community, they might be like referred to as egg moments, those moments where you look back at like, oh, how did I not know I was trans until in the margins you talk a lot about like how you would wear your hair short how you would run around in baseball caps how did growing up not knowing you were trans but eventually figuring it out interplay with that kind of fundamentalist upbringing you had yeah it's it's really interesting because at home the way that i expressed gender was never really that much of an issue right i I was able to wear baseball caps and have baggy clothes and had action figures and Barbies and Cabbage Patch, right? Like I had all of the things um, and none of that was really ever talked about or 
you know, occasionally I would get some rolled eyes around the action figures or whatever, but it, it was never really a big deal. It wasn't really until I hit puberty and my body started to change. And also, I think around that time, you know, getting more involved in church, that then gender started to become more of an issue. Um, and, and part of it was I was starting to get, quote unquote, like mistaken for a boy more often. And that made my mom really uncomfortable. I, I think my mom was really invested in having a daughter. Um, and mm. so there was always some tension there around the fact that I, I wasn't, right? And I think yeah. everyone could tell from a really young age that I wasn't. You know, it's it's also so interesting growing up without any language around gender, right? Like we didn't Honestly. ever talk about gender. It was so, it was like so baked into the fabric of what our church did, right? Like I, I remember gendered events and I remember feeling uncomfortable about those, but I never remember us actually having conversations about gender yeah. um, or gender deviance or any of that. Uh, and so it, it created this really weird space of, I feel like I'm failing at something, but no one is talking about it and no one's naming it. And I don't have language to name it. And mm -hmm. so it just put me in this strange space of, I, I don't know what's wrong, but I feel like something is different about me than the people that I'm surrounded by. And of course, like you said, looking back now, I'm like, oh, well. <laughs> that tracks now. Yeah, okay. And I can see the, you know, I can see the lineage and all, and all of the different moments. Um, but it took a really long time to be able to to piece all of that together and to also piece together, you know, I talk a lot about this in the book, a, a mission trip that I went on when I was 16 mm. and where like all of the things around gender and sexuality really came to a head. And, and I think that like, it took me a long time to figure out what was happening that summer. It wasn't until I was an adult and looked back and I was like, Oh, everyone saw in me gender and sexual deviance and didn't know how to name it, but they yeah. just knew that they needed to like squash it. Um, yeah. And I was feeling the pressure of all of that. And again, as someone who exists under the transgender umbrella, I t totally feel you on a lot of this because uh, I grew up going to lots of like smaller, like Lutheran uh, ELCA denomination churches. And there was once we were at a VBS or something and I, it was the first summer I was really wearing my hair short and I was in, in the girls' room just trying to do my business or whatever. And one of the old church ladies was like, are you in the right room? And yeah. that little moments like that throughout one's childhood really point to, we didn't have language for who we were growing up. And even though I'm like late nineties, grew up in the, over the course of the thousands, even though we had slightly more language than you might have had in the eighties and nineties for it, it's still very interesting to see how much we have grown to know about like the different binary expansive uh, and identities that there are these days. Yeah. It's 100%. interesting to see how the past experiences can now be made a little better sense of in the present. <laughs> for sure. For sure. So I'm curious for you. And I know, I mean, I know, what the impact was because I read a little bit more about it in your book yeah. but just for the audience <laughs> tell us a little bit about what was that impact on you for you like specifically at this camp but even more broadly to feel that pressure what did that create for you both then and even maybe longer term what did that create for you and in you yeah you know I, I think looking back it was really clear it's really clear to me that I was deeply depressed as um, a young teenager, preteen teenager, that that depression was very much triggered by puberty. And so I, I was existing in this space of both like feeling uncomfortable in my body and having everyone kind of like laugh that off or assume that it was just like normal puberty growing pains but also feeling this real sense of deep sadness all the time um, mm. that now I would be like, oh yeah, it was depression. But at that time, like sad was the best word that I had in a community, again, that not only did they not talk about gender, they did not talk about mental health. Yeah. Therapy was not something that was accessible or encouraged or whatever. Um, and so it, it, it not only felt like I was living in this world where I was a gender failure, though I wouldn't have termed that, termed it that at the time, but it was also that I was having some kind of spiritual failing, right? Because yep. I was existing in this world where 
contemporary Christian music was huge. And if you had a problem in that song, like Jesus fixed it by the end. And that, and that was kind of the assumption of life too, right? Like if you have a problem, Jesus is going to come and fix it. And if Jesus hadn't fixed your problem, somehow it was your fault, right? You didn't have enough faith. You hadn't prayed hard enough. You didn't trust hard enough. And so I'm existing in this world where I'm trying, I am trying so hard. Like I, I am totally invested. I, I have no doubts about the reality of God, about any of the theology that I've been, that I'm being taught at this mm-hmm. point. And I'm also having this experience of I'm not as happy as everyone else. Um, and now, of course, also looking back, it's like no one else was as happy as they were saying they were. Right. Um, yeah. Right. We were all existing in this world where it's like, you know, you you do the you do the thing. And I and I think that that had a, a real deep impact on me of teaching me that my emotions couldn't be trusted, mm-hmm. that I wasn't allowed to trust my intuition, that I couldn't ever put my own needs first, right? There was this real sense of you take care of everyone else around you and your own needs don't really matter. And I think, and so internalizing all of that and, and having that not only be like what it meant to be a good person, but like what it meant to be a good Christian that lasted for me and way after I left that particular denomination and church right. um, of having to unlearn those lessons because I, I learned them at such a young age, such a young and um, kind of vulnerable age and and just internalized all of that. Yeah. Well, and in the book, you uh, put it very succinctly as like having to go through this process of unbinding and being unbound from all of these different gender role expectations and from all of these harmful theologies. And looking back, that's also been a lot of my process too, is very much like having to basically nitpick all of these things that were programmed into me from such a young age that I didn't even realize were doing such harm in my life until I sat down and like looked at this pile of garbage, like, okay, what is actually good in all of this? And even in just the the nature of transitioning to, you put it really beautifully in the book uh, saying uh, that you couldn't really be close to God until you could make peace with your body and who you were, that your your homecoming was a, a process of making peace with yourself. And I thought that was just a really beautiful way of putting that. Because uh, again, uh, until you can find fully know who you are, you can't really like explore the, the greater things that play around you. Would you care to expound a little more on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I grew up in a world that talked a lot about the spirit, right? Like mm-hmm. Spirit is spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, uh, right? All of these messages about negative messages about the body. And I remember feeling like, well, hating my body must be, must make me really holy then, right? Because like, I've got all of these messages. I'm like, oh, I'm a, I am a head of the curve. And so I, I really did exist in this, uh, kind of divided state of, of my body being my enemy, of it being something that I had to I don't know, bring into submission or deny. Um, yeah. And that was really easy because I wasn't comfortable in my body. And and then when I started my deconstruction process, my faith became really intellectual, which was also another way, right, for me to distance myself from my body. It was like, I, I'm not going to, I don't have to feel anything about God anymore. I just have to think things about God and theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I started my transition and started to like come back into my body and feel at peace in my body that I realized like, oh, actually I can't, I can't be fully human, but I also can't be fully present for other people, fully in community with other people um, without healing this divide. And, and honestly that like, that's been the greatest gift of my transition is the, the healing of that divide. And it gave me space and, opportunity and language to also fuse theology that combined both my head and my heart. Uh, And that was something that I didn't expect to happen when I transitioned, but it's been such a gift. Right. Well, I I found that uh, coming back to self, coming back to like that embodiment has been a very healing part of my deconstruction as well. Because uh, like you said, it's, we are not just separate body and soul. It is one being together, but we've been taught for so long that uh, there is no good in me except God. Uh, And to have to then unspool that 
and recognize that we are made in God's image, and that is something that is a hundred percent, whether that's your your mind, your will, or your emotions, that still lives within your body, and that is still a valuable thing worth protecting and being in tune with and not having to tune out, okay, I have to just plow through and do, do, do all these things I have to do for the church or whatever ministerial things. And it doesn't matter if I'm tired, if I don't feel good or whatever, if I'm pressing because this is my ministry, it's worth it. And to really acknowledge that, no, like God cares about this flesh being fed, being rested just as much as he cares about whatever spiritual implications we're trying to make happen in our ministry, our fields or whatever. It's a holistic approach to self. So I feel like as I was reading this book, Shannon, I felt like you like deconstructed before it was like cool to deconstruct. <laughs> before it was sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is incredible that you had that inner resilience to even go on that journey. That's so why I was in awe of that, first of all. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I thought it was so interesting the thing theologically that was your kind of first like chink in the foundation of like something's not right here if they're lying to me about this what else are they lying to me about um can you tell us a little bit about that and what that experience was like for you yeah i think a lot of people assume that for me in particular but for queer and trans folks in general that like our theologies shift to make spaces for our our identities and for me that was like very much not the case um that i started this process of asking questions about the faith that I had been handed, maybe around the same time that I started having real questions about my identity. But but often, it wasn't about trying to figure out like, if it was okay to be gay. Uh, at that time, it was, it was about trying to figure out like, I don't, I don't know, there, there seems to be, I seem to be getting told some things that I'm not sure I'm like actually seeing in the Bible. Um, and one of the big things for me, I was reading Bruce Bauer's Stealing Jesus, um, which is a book about the rise of fundamentalism in the United States. And I had always been taught about the rapture, right? Grew up being terrified of the rapture. This was in the time when the Left Behind series were bajillion dollar bestsellers and they were making films out of them and you know dc talk was recording larry norman's i wish we'd all been ready and that was a huge number one hit right so this idea that the rapture was like just i was steeped in it and i've been taught that it was like a thing that was clear in the bible and that jesus had taught about it and like it was gonna happen and so i'm reading the Stealing Jesus book, and he starts to talk about the rapture and how it hadn't been taught until the 1800s. And some mm-hmm. dude in England named John Nelson Darby started preaching about the rapture. And I definitely had a moment of like, are you kidding me? Like this doctrine that has terrified me my entire life was made up <laughs> by some English dude. And I and I definitely knew my pastors had gone to seminary, right? I knew that there was no chance that they had gotten through a master's degree without knowing where this doctrine came from. And so the fact that they hadn't told anyone was really frustrating to me. And, and I, and it did set me on this journey of uh, what else do they know that they're not telling us? How else are the things that I've just I've just taken at face value is like, of course, this is what we believe. Of course, this is the only way to believe. Um, What else might have been baked into those beliefs that weren't true or that there were other ways to understand? And so that really did set me on a journey of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go through everything I've been taught and I'm not going to throw everything out, but I really am going to like hold each piece up to the light and say, mm-hmm. is there another way to understand this? You know, who else has taught about this? What have they taught? What did the earliest church believe? Um, and that really sent me on a journey of of making space for making space for and asking questions about a lot of different things. And of course, that also then helped me to make space for my sexuality. And then by the time I was ready to transition, to have already done the work that transitioning wasn't a theological conundrum for me. It was more of a social and, you know, familial conundrum. But uh, but yeah, that, that, that journey of deconstruction 
when I was doing it, I, there, no one was talking about it, right? Mm-hmm. It, yeah. The emergent church ha- had just started and they were a bunch of cis white guys who like were uncomfortable at best with queer people. And so that I didn't feel like I had a space in any of these spaces that maybe were starting that process, um, but we're still really invested in upholding all of the same patriarchal white supremacist, you know, yeah. bullshit that their churches that they were leaving also held held on to. It's like all of the bullshit in like a nicer looking wrapping, basically. Right. How do we uh, decorate yeah. and package this? Uh, but yeah, you were saying um, in the book, uh, talking a little bit about how um, just not being content with being spoon fed what you should believe anymore too and really like taking that idea of you are your own spiritual authority and so you can figure out okay does this view actually fit what I believe where I'm at right now I love when you kind of kicked it over to the story of Jacob and talking about him wrestling with God not just to be like receive the blessings that are his or whatever but to like really have that intimacy of being able to grapple with whatever you believe and like be with the divine in the midst of that it is such just a beautiful picture and an illustration of that and that that image has been really important to me i i remember early on in this process i was reading a book called if grace is true which is by mulholland and gully uh and it's it's examining atonement theories and i remember my mom seeing the book on the floor and and being like well if this is true, then why did Jesus have to die? And I was like, well, that's exactly the question that I'm trying to answer. Right. And and her being really nervous about like, well, you're reading this book that could challenge your faith. And, and I remember thinking even then, like, if one book can challenge my faith, something's wrong with my faith, not with the book. Yep. Yeah. Right? Yep. And, and that, I, I think that sense of intellectual curiosity, but also tenacity of saying, like, I... I am not afraid of new information mm-hmm. um, yep. and also that I don't think God is either, right? This, yeah. this real sense of, of growing into a God who, or growing, growing my own understanding of God to realize that God can handle my questions, yeah. that God can handle my grappling and my wrestling, that there was nothing that was too precious that I couldn't ask the question and that that like, the the anxiousness around that wasn't god it was this community it was about power it was about control um and once i was able to kind of like unhinge that that just allowed me to really to do this deep dive and to not feel so afraid while diving um even as even as there were moments of fear um but to but to know that that this too was like a holy endeavor and that this wrestling was actually a holy and and sacred and important thing to do. Well, and uh, we've talked on uh, Refuge here before about how God is too big to fit into one mold, just like we are too big to be shoved into any two flavors of boxes, you know? Uh, your experience growing up in Pennsylvania and your travels across the country since then, Brendan's life is much different from my life, only having ever been rooted in uh, Minnesota. But all of our different experiences really color uh the way that we interact with the divine and the way that we perceive uh god as creator as father as however you view god again you you talk about the the intellectual curiosity being able to ask the questions and know that there doesn't have to be one solid cut and dry answer uh as long as you are content with like being able to rest in some degree of uncertainty and know that People might not agree with the way you see God. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong, but it's very much about the personal connection and implications it has for you in your life. I think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I just want to agree with you on that point. For me, one of my biggest chinks in my foundation was, I don't know if you remember this moment in church, recent church, Christian evangelical history, when Love Wins came out. Mm -hmm. Um, Rob Bell wrote Love Wins. It was like, and there, it wasn't, the book itself wasn't the chink, but it was the church's reaction to that book for me. Mm. Because for me, as someone who had some intellectual curiosity, 
I thought the book was interesting and I, it didn't, what was interesting about the book is it didn't come to any conclusion. It was just asking questions. And I, I remember thinking the thought, what is it about this movement that I am a part of that is so afraid of questions? And that really bothered me like at a deep level. And that kind of created a crack for me and my foundation that just kind of unfolded from there. Where, I mean, this is, where do you, if you were to kind of, I know we talked about power and control. If you were to name what that is, where that comes from, that, that anxiety, what would you say is around that or in that? I mean, it's, it's white supremacy. It's patriarchy. Um, it's, it's the fact that fear works. Right. I mean, the the religious right has been working on this for this particular exact moment for years and years and years. Um, and they've done it by, I, I think, being really smart. Right. Like the yep. the the folks that are the architects of this movement are are really smart and they know that if you can scare people, um, you can control them that there is a there's a real sense of of you know we we're just constantly folding in folding in of like if we just say these things like we're good to go we're safe um and that that desire for safety i think is really appealing to a lot of people the desire to be right is really appealing to a lot of people and i and it really serves the the folks that are in charge which are white straight cisgender men who also long for political and spiritual power. And it's been really instructive to me to read about the ways in which politicians and theological leaders have worked together, because I think that a lot of people who are in evangelical churches have no idea of that history. I know I sure didn't until I got out. And so they just they just are absorbing all of this as this is these are theological questions this is spiritual this doesn't have anything to do with politics but it does right it, and and it's been it's been constructed really carefully over now centuries um to create this moment where that uh, where we're in where we are quickly sliding towards a fascist country under the name of Jesus, right? Yeah. And it's and it's a real bastardization of everything that Jesus ever stood for and was about. Honestly. Right. Well, and later, in one of the later chapters of your book, you talk about uh, Jesus in the wilderness and the temptation of, like, you could rule over all of this. You, you could have this dominion. And that kind of dominion theology is kind of hand in hand with the kind of current Christian nationalism forces we see at play uh, these days. But you frame it really well and very succinctly by pointing uh, to Luke 4, 16 and 20, when Jesus tells us exactly what he came here to do to release the captives, healing for those in pain, the inclusion into community for anyone who had been excluded, and the year of Jubilee. And as you're saying these things, I'm immediately thinking of all of the the things that um, kind of the, the conservative Christian right is kind of up in arms about right now especially the debt forgiveness thing that has recently come through so often i want to be like hi you've have you read deuteronomy 15 when it says anything <laughs> forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors uh, but that idea of a reset it's like there's so much about what christ came to do that is just so antithetical to what people in positions of power are striving for that I feel yep. like when we bring these questions and try to address like these discrepancies, it really kind of scares them a little bit because what do you mean you're you're questioning our authority and like challenging what we say is the the heart of this thing when really it's antithetical to anything that Jesus would have said or practiced. And you know, it's been a really brilliant move by them mm -hmm. to divorce politics from spirituality while also using spirituality to legislate morality, mm. right? They've taken it out of anything that is around money or debt or, uh, you know, political systems that actually help people. 
and they've centered it all around like who's in bed with whom and yep. and what we're allowed to do with our bodies and yep. like that it's a it's a brilliant move and it's also not it's not an accident no, right it's not it's an accident that they're like oh jesus wasn't political it's like yeah because you are uncomfortable <laughs> with right. the way she was political it was very political and it and it and it you know and they've they've managed to like do all of this pretzeling to serve their own their own interests it's yeah that's a are we reading the same book about the same person come on right <laughs> <laughs> now that's yeah. a, a whole rabbit trail i'm wholly unqualified for if you want similar <laughs> content go listen to straight white american jesus because brad onishi has it like on lock over there out of my depth Shannon, I guess I would be curious to know, and I know, I mean, I do know because I read your book, but tell <laughs> us a little bit about what were some of the moments for you that kind of pulled you towards yourself, mm-hmm. that kind of pulled you out of these systems that were oppressive? What were those moments where you were able to give yourself permission to be yourself? Mm-hmm. And how did you see those building over time? And what did that look like? That's such an interesting question because I think in some ways, and I don't know, I don't know what it is about me, right? I I can't, I don't have an answer to this question in that I have always been myself, right? You look at pictures of me when I'm 13 and it's like, oh, there's a, there's a boy standing there. And I always had this sense of, I'm not gonna be what you want me to be. Even when that often cost me things but there was this there was this intrinsic call it stubbornness call it you know whatever that wouldn't allow me to not be myself so there was that but then I think what gave me space over time were folks who were really gentle with me and who met me where I was but also like cracked open a door into a new way of thinking or believing. Um, And they did it after I had come to trust them, after I knew their heart, right? Uh, I'm thinking of pastors that I met that were more theologically or were less theologically conservative than I I was who mentored me uh, and who would never push, but sometimes be like, hey, Maybe this, the way that you think about this isn't the only way to think about this. Um, And just a series of those moments that allowed me to see that there were other people who were good and faithful Christians who were not trying to tear down the church, right? Not trying to get me to abandon my faith, but were instead simply encouraging me to think more expansively. Mm. Um, That really made the difference over time. And I think... I think that that also has so influenced why I'm so determined to be out and to be vocal and to be visible in my identity and my theology, because I know what it meant to me to be able to see someone else as a model of someone I could grow up into. And I, I also know how how few of those folks were queer and trans, right? That I didn't have access yep. to them at that time, or I didn't know. And so to, I, I think it's so vital that that young people in particular have examples of thriving, healthy, holistic adults to look up to and say like, oh, I can grow up and be that. That there is someone, I like I can see a future for myself. I can see another way to think or to be, and I, I think that it's just such an important thing and that and it, and it has made such a difference in my life to have those people. Yeah, definitely. Well, and not to blow smoke or anything, but you've definitely been one of those people for me as someone who's been like navigating out of my former church context. Uh, I've only really been thoroughly exploring the the queer theological space since about October of last year. And to have people like you and like Brian and uh, others in the the podcasting environment who are so open about their queerness and still being very active in their faith journey and creating space for those to 
identities to exist in tandem, but not in tension the way that I was raised to view them. It's been so incredibly healing and has really helped me. Later in the book, you mentioned kind of one of the, the big struggles of someone who is assigned female at birth of like being told you have to make yourself small or you have to like shift yourself to fit into spaces that aren't necessarily meant for you, like holding in positions that for too long that maybe don't fit where you're at anymore. Um, whether that's staying in a workplace that I shouldn't have stayed in as long as I did or relationships. What was the like real catalyst for you to tr truly like unlock that sense of just being who you are unapologetically and bringing your full self to the table? If there was I mean, I like, think any marker, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm still in, in process on that for sure. I, I, I definitely think that you know, the last time I stayed at a job too long, uh, what ended up happening is I ended up getting laid off. But like I had known for months that I needed to get out and I I just didn't leave. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I didn't leave for a lot of like real financial reasons and fear and all of that stuff. But there was a moment after that where I was like, okay, I, like I'm seeing these patterns in my life where my body tries to get my attention uh, and tries to get me to pay attention to my intuition. And mm. I just have to stop. I just, I have to stop ignoring these signs and these moments because every time I've tuned in and listened to my intuition, it's been right. right. And, and I think that this is also a moment where I will, I will speak to anyone and everyone about how important a journaling practice is because mm. A journaling practice for me has has been like a written guide of all of the times when I had intuition and ignored it. And I can see a record of like when I first had this thought that like I got to get out of this thing. And then I can look back and be like, oh, well, duh, like I have okay. a written record now of this thing. Um, and so that's why I, I really do encourage folks, especially who are trying to to get back to a sense of being able to listen to their bodies, to be mm -hmm. able to listen to intuition, to have a journaling practice, whatever that looks like for you. It, for mine, it's handwritten in a book. Like you could do it on your computer, but it, what it allows you to do is, is to look back and be like, Oh, I can trust myself because I have this written record of all of the times that I did and it worked out. Or I had this moment where I wrote down this thought and I ignored that and look, that turned out to be right. And I could have saved myself all of this time of, of stress and pain um, had I listened to myself sooner. And I think that that, so that last time was really a catalyst of like, I got to figure this out. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't keep doing the same pattern anymore because it's, um, it's not serving me and it's not serving yeah. the people around me either. I, I feel seen and also called out because uh, in like going through my journals over the past, whatever, I keep seeing like these cyclical patterns of like, okay, you were struggling with not having enough rest. You were struggling with not having enough rest. You were, yeah, All of these little uh, things that just kind of cycle back around and learning now that I can trust myself to be my own spiritual authority and be like, again, wholly and authentically yourself and, and to trust that you know what's good for you. Uh, has been such a healing thing. You bring up the uh, Gospel of Thomas, which I thought was incredibly interesting and very poignant for me, but it's when you come to know yourselves, then you will become known and you will realize that it is you who are the children of the living father. Or like, if you bring forth what is in you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is in you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And to know that if there's stuff in you that you're just not addressing and not taking care of, that's what's going to like eat you up from the inside and not let you live into this full and abundant life that you are called to lead. It's uh, But when you are able to just let loose and be yourself like unleashed, it's such a healing thing and not just for you, but for those who you might have influence around. Uh, would you like to expound on that at all? Because I, I was very fired up when I got to that chapter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that my experience with transitioning was very much this idea of, of coming to that moment where it was like, I, I could not transition and I could keep a sense of stability and mm. um, a bunch of status quo things in my life would have been 
fine, right? Fine-ish. And, but there was also this real sense of like, if I don't do this, things are going to be limited, right? Like I'm not going to be able to be fully present with people. I'm not going to be living into my full truth. Um, And it was this sense of bringing forth those those things, even though it cost me a lot, um, it, it was the thing that saved me. And I and I do believe looking back, like had I not done it, I it would have been the thing that would have destroyed me, um, probably slowly and over a lot of years. But um, I, it gives me a lot of comfort to know that there are, you know, these non-canonical texts, but, but these teachings that we also see in the canonical gospels. Um, yeah of like tapping into and bringing forth what what is in us and and also this idea that like the kingdom of god is among us and in us and that we can bring it about now that that's part of living into our full selves also allows us to live fully into community and to look Mm. out for one another and like that's that's the whole mission and that's the un the unfolding of that is how we get to justice and peace and wholeness and um and the abundant life that jesus talked about like i really i really believe that um you wrote beautifully about the transfiguration of christ and i'm wondering if that kind of fits into what you're saying here and in like the terms of like i feel like jesus in in that moment it was like jesus's form of vulnerability and like showing Mm -hmm. that to us yeah, and I, I think that the the idea, right, that many of us are, have been taught that Jesus kind of came out of the womb knowing right. who he was and what he was meant to do uh, is just like not borne up in the stories that we have. We have these stories of, of Jesus's unfolding and unfurling identity as he as he gets spoken to by people in his life who encourage him to live into his identity, as he reveals more and more of himself to his closest friends, as he has his wilderness experience. Um, And in this moment of the transfiguration, right, where he pulls three of his closest friends aside, we see this, this vulnerability, this fear as Jesus like reveals something of himself to his friends who don't respond in the best way, right? And I think yeah. that many of us who have had coming out experiences, we know what exactly what that is like. Um, but also there is in this moment uh, kind of this sense in Jesus that he he be, he got very clear on like, oh, now I get it. Now I know what I'm here to do. Mm-hmm. Now I know what I'm called to. And it's it's not a surprise to me that like, they walked off that mountain and then it was the road to Jerusalem, right? Like everything after that was leading to this confrontation um, with yeah. the political powers. Uh, and, and I think yeah. that like that reveal of his friends and inviting them into what he was called to do was like part, part of that process. And I think that it's, it's a very, it, it's a moment where we can see Jesus's humanity in a really beautiful way. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we can, learn from from his vulnerability and his inviting other people in to 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 his mission it's a beautiful way of looking at that that i would not have considered if you hadn't written it (laughs) i also had the thought just as you were talking about like how jesus's humanity and like that he had to discover who he was and what he was called to do is very well illustrated in those stories but even just like that I'm sure y'all being internet people as well deal with some degree of imposter syndrome or whatever and not knowing if you're quite like qualified to be where you're at or doing what you're doing. Maybe this is just me projecting. But um, I think a lot about the story of the, the, the wedding where he turned water into wine and how it took prompting from Mary to like fully step in to that he's like I don't know if it's my time is this like are we ready to do this thinking of that like in the lens of a transition or a coming out is an interesting thing because sometimes people around you see the things in you that you don't yet see for yourself and again when we're little and we have these behaviors that other people can like peg and say okay that that's something different there's something not necessarily like divergent or like defiant but like there's some different flavor to this human that they don't yet see in themselves. Uh, seeing that illustrated in 
how uh, Jesus interacts with Mary and with the disciples is just a really cool thing. So I guess while we're on the topic of Jesus and the divine, mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit, Shannon, about kind of your journey in wrestling with God throughout this process for yourself and kind of the ideas of God that are put on us as younglings and then um, how we wrestle through that as we wrestle through our identities. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the biggest thing for me was uh, was unlearning a God of fear. You know, I, I think the when I look at the biggest things that were taught to me as a child, right, they were God was love, but God was also out to get you. Right. Like, yeah, you could right. be smoked at any moment. Um, yeah. And it was like, yeah, you had God's favor, but only because you had done the right thing and like everyone else was going to hell. And and so it was really, I, I think, grappling with that idea first and and kind of coming to a point where it was like, OK, if these things are true about God. Is this even a being that I would want to worship or be in relationship with? Because. Ooh this God is kind of a dick. Right. And, and <laughs> yeah, and that to me, I think helped me to start to unpack. Okay. I feel like there's something else going on here because I, I do feel called to this story. I, I do feel like there is something beyond me. And so so then it was like, then then there has to be another way to understand. Um, and I do think that like looking then at the story of Jesus was really instructive of figuring out, okay, this idea that Jesus simply came to die to appease God's wrath, like doesn't track for me anymore. So if that's not the case, um, which is what I had been taught, then, then what is? Um, and then it was, you know, really learning to read the Bible, learning to read it like scholars read it that then allowed me to understand the Jesus story better, which then allowed me to understand the divine better. Right. And it was, a, it was an unraveling as I figured out like, Oh, the, the way that I was taught to understand these stories is like not the way that any scholars read these texts, right? Like mm. this is, this is just not how scholars read the Bible. Um, and yep. that, that allowed me then to, to engage in the stories better and then to, to figure out, Oh, I think that there's something else going on here, which then allowed me to like unhook from all of that fear yeah. and to instead, instead of seeing a God or a divine being that like just wants us to obey, it's, it's really God who invites us into continuing the work of Jesus and many other prophets um, of restoration and repair, right? That, mm. that we're invited into the work of the divine, that we're invited into the work of building the kingdom of God, that it's not about who's in and who's out. It's about making sure that we can all be in and that we're, yeah. that we're responsible for one another and that the work that we're called to do is about spirit but it's also about bodies and it's also about food and it's also about money and it's also about the creation and that that I now really understand that it's it's not about like going to heaven when we die it's about being a part of co-creating with God right here right now that that the concerns of God and the concerns of Jesus were very present and anchored in a particular place and time and that we are called to to continue and to be a part of that work. Yeah. Gosh, you have a very beautiful chapter uh, towards the end about um, how the kingdom of God is not something that's just this ethereal thing, but very much here at hand. And like how we are called to just be a part of loving one another well and lifting each other up. I'm curious what that looks like in action in terms of like, your process and your approach to people, because I know uh, a lot of your work through queer theology has done a lot to help make some of that happen uh, in just showing queer kids like me that we're loved exactly as we are and just helping us form a, a better theology. But uh, what are some ways that you approach that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's twofold, right? Because on the theological side, it's, it's about helping um, and equipping people to read the Bible better, right? So it's about making tools available to people so that they can read the Bible on their own, but they can read it 
like scholars read it and and to be able to to do that work without having to go to seminary right like i i think mm-hmm. that that this way of reading is accessible to people but it takes work um and so to make yeah. those uh resources available to folks and then i think the the other flip side of that is to to also constantly be be reiterating that like this this idea of me and Jesus divorced from any practical real world applications is like mm-hmm. not it. And so, so, so it's, it's like, yeah, you want to have a relationship with the divine. You want to follow Jesus. What that looks like is getting involved in your community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't mean your church community. I mean, your actual community where it's like looking and identifying like what are the needs around you? How can you start to meet those needs? who's already doing work that you can get involved in. You know, I think that that many of us feel like we immediately have to be leaders. And it's sometimes what we really need to do is learn for a while, right? Yeah. We need to be apprentices. Yeah. We need to um, listen, uh, especially white folks, right? Mm-hmm. Need to just be, maybe we're the people that need to like put up and take down the chairs for the meeting for the next yeah. year. Uh, and that's all we do. Um, and so I think that like, that's also part of the work. It's right. It's, it's equipping people to be able to understand um, and unhook from unhealthy theologies, but mm-hmm. also to then get involved in their communities and, and do the work. Yeah. Well, and I feel like part of that too, is again, the idea that it's not just about, it's not just between you and Jesus, you know, it's uh, yep. meant to be that community endeavor. That's not just like, having a singular leader who tells people just okay this is what the kingdom of god looks like it's about kind of that non-hierarchical sitting around the table with the last supper and sharing ideas and thoughts and like having conversations about whatever topic is at hand like it doesn't have to be a like world-changing theological thing it can just be like okay this is my view on what salvation looks like on what sin means and to let others and their experience color our experience as well and to not just try to go through this thing alone because that's the one thing god calls not good is that man should be alone so being connected and networking with other people not not even networking networking feels like too corporate a word but you know having genuine <laughs> connection with one another and doing this thing called life together yeah and i i do want to say though that like well while we don't have to uh, get invested in hierarchical systems. Mm-hmm. Um, we do sometimes need to be led, right? Yeah. <laughs> that um, that I, I think that there is this impulse in some communities to be like leadership is bad, uh, and it's mm-hmm. like no, <laughs> it's it's not actually the the people that need to be leading though are the ones who are most impacted by the issue, um, yeah. and yeah. that sometimes sometimes the way that we feel about things um, doesn't matter right? Because like mm-hmm. the people who are most impacted need to lead us and and that we, it's our that job then to like deal with our own feelings uh, and, and be led. And so I just, yep. I think it's important to just name that, um, yeah. that, that, that that's part of it. And, and I also want to say that like, sometimes this idea of deconstruction or a more expansive theology leads people to to say that like anything goes. Mm. Um, and I also want to say that like, while I think that there are a wide number of ways to understand God and the divine, there are also some wrong ways <laughs> to yeah. understand God and the divine and to read the Bible. Um, and so that it's like, I, I, I want to say that it's also not just about you know, anything goes, or you can just believe whatever you want. It's also like, no, it, it has to be rooted in in communal understanding, but also communal understanding that is guided by scholarship and, yeah, and all of these things. I, I suppose more what I was uh, going for was not being so tied up in, like, thinking our way of thinking is correct, uh, and being open to being, hearing different perspectives and being able to receive coaching if that makes sense cool. yeah and I think yeah. that that's why like um I, I I so see trans and queer theology coming out of a stream 
of many other theologies that mm-hmm. have been done from the margins, like Black the- theology and womanist theology and mm-hmm. liberation theology. Um, and that actually the more the more people doing theology from their own particularities actually gives us a fuller sense of the divine. Yeah. Um, and that we do need to listen and learn from one another. And that I, I think one of the the biggest things that has served my life has been being a lifelong learner and being mm-hmm. willing to consider new ways of understanding, being willing to be corrected, um, being willing to admit that I was wrong or that I had understood wrongly and, and yeah. being open to new ways of understanding, which is really hard. Um, but I think it's been, it's, it's so important that, that we lean into those spaces. Yeah. It's part of the the challenges on the road to growth. And I love just seeing how those, those different growths of vines intertwine. Yeah. Well, Shannon, you mentioned that there is like, there is, you know, there is some expansiveness within theological spaces, but there is clearly theology that you're like, this is wrong. You can't use the Bible in this way. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, kind of expound on that a little bit for us? What, what does that look like? Where is that? Where do you see that line? Um, and how could we guide other people to draw that for themselves? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I see that in any time um, we're using language like inerrant and literal literalist uh, understandings of the Bible. Like, I think that's an absolutely wrong way to read scripture. No, no scholar reads scripture in that way. And so, so that's a big one. I, I think anytime that we're using scripture and theology to further injure people that are already marginalized, um, that we're doing the opposite of what all of scripture is calling us to do that you know when we're only focused on eternal salvation and what happens after we die that we're using scripture and theology poorly and i think if if you eliminate those three things <laughs> you're already well on your way to yes. a, a healthier <laughs> just three little small things uh, yeah. Space, yeah. Yes. um <laughs> Those are the three big ones that I that I see, you know, most often and doing mm-hmm. the most harm. Yeah, one hundred percent. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and let you get back to your afternoon here. So, uh, Brendan, do you have any more you'd like to talk about before we wrap things up here? Yes. Um, so, uh, Shannon, if someone is curious to learn more about what you do, or to find your book, or find your podcasts, or follow you on social media. Where could they go? Where Where is Shannon? Where can they find him? Yeah. So the book you can get anywhere books are sold. Uh, I always encourage folks to buy from independent bookstores. But, you know, if you only have access to the big ones, <laughs> that's fine, too. Yeah. Um, I am at Shannon T.L. Kearns everywhere. So that's my website. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And um, I do TikTok badly. But I am there. And then for our work at Queer Theology, you can go to queertheology.com. And then we're at Queer Theology on Instagram and Facebook and at Q Theology on Twitter because someone got to Queer Theology first. (laughs) But those are the two best places to find find me and all of the work that I'm doing. Excellent. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts for us before we let you go? Yes. um, My closing thought right now uh it is for all cis folks that are listening mm-hmm. um and that the trans community really needs you to get on board with fighting for trans lives right yes, now please. um to find out what is happening in your city and state there's been just scores and scores and scores of anti-trans legislation uh, introduced this year and we need you to be organizing and to be voting and to be listening to the trans folks in your life about how this is impacting them, not just, you know, on a political level, but also emotionally and financially. And we just need your support and we need you to be following the lead of trans folks um, because we can't do this alone. But it's really, really important that you pay attention to what's happening and that you get involved. Definitely. I, I second that immensely, again, as someone who falls under the transgender umbrella. 
yeah, not something to be taken lightly, not something to be brushed off simply because it doesn't affect you. Like it affects someone yeah. in your life. I can guarantee it. Thank you so much, Shannon. It was so lovely meeting you and chatting with you. And thank you so much for sharing your perspectives on everything. It was awesome. It has been absolutely My pleasure. Delightful. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to Refuge Radio. Audio production and music were provided by Inclusion Audio with musical help from Lyndon Braun.